0: I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Apocalypse Mom Edition. It's Wednesday, April 18th, 2018. On today's show, A Quiet Place is the latest in a line of taught, clever indie horror movies that we've discussed on our show. This one stars and was directed by John Krasinski, he of the American Office fame and then the newish BBC adaptation of E.M. Forster's classic novel, Howard's End. It's now available on Stars. in the U.S. It's directed by Hedy MacDonald and written by Kenneth Lonergan. We discuss. And finally, capitalism both produces more longevity and a profit incentive around death denial. Where does the line get drawn between prolonging life and denying human mortality? We discuss a provocative essay by Barbara Ehrenreich. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia.
1: Hi, Steve. How are you?
0: I'm good. Do I seem well? Do I seem okay?
1: You seem great. I'm just happy to be uh, reacquainted with you in this virtual space. I know audio we're space. gabbing again. Yeah,
0: it's been so long, and of course, we're joined by uh, Slate's film critic Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana.
1: Hey, Steven, Welcome back. Oh, <laughs> hold on, Steve. I can light the. Wait, Steve. Want. I can I Facetime you right now? Never mind. I'm going to send you a picture.
0: Oh, 500-y. I mean, I'm just kind of staring at the cupcakes.
1: 500 episodes. That's what this
2: is. For some reason, that feels like an incredibly burdensome anniversary. More so than 10 years, like 500 times we've done this. Oh, my God. I didn't know I had done anything in my life 500 times.
1: You guys, one amazing revelation I had about our 500 episodes is, I think, I'm not sure, but I think... This week's memo for our 500th episode is the first time that we were asked to consider potentially doing as a topic something that was a revival of something that we did as a topic when it first launched also within our past 500 episodes, which is Jersey Shore. (laughs) I'm not sure I'm right, but we, we, we considered talking about the Jersey Shore reunion show. And I have this very distinct memory of talking about the first Jersey Shore and actually having it be a segment where I was like, we really are doing something with this show because... We kind of eye-rollingly went into doing The Jersey Shore, and we're like, Ugh, I guess we have to talk about it. And then we all found it completely fascinating because it was a very different type of reality TV than the type that we had typically thought of, which took place in like a, van- a bland, like, un-space with like, one person of each type from everywhere as opposed to trying to uh, capture a microcosm. Like, I just... I remember that first conversation, and it's very funny and maybe a little sad that <laughs> we're still here to potentially talk about the revival. We won't talk about the revival, but... <laughs> Anyway, when we... Snooky
2: goes to her grave, we'll be here to talk about her, what her life meant. <laughs>
1: <laughs> can't wait for the Snooky Obit. So, do you sing for uh, your 500th episode? I don't think and you what sing. What are the words to the song? I don't even know. Oh, it's the classic 500th podcast
0: episode <laughs> song.
1: But you know what? You can't sing it. Copyright. Sorry.
0: <laughs> Sorry. All right. We'll have to skip that. I, I kind of, why am I hearing God Rest ye Merry Gentlemen? That's the. <laughs> All right. Should we climb out of the abyss and do our show?
1: It sounds good, but somebody has to blow out the candles. I I nominate (laughs) Dana.
2: (laughs) All right. I'm going to make a wish that that there'd be 500 more at the end of which we're still laughing (laughs) rather than weeping.
1: All right. Nailed it. Dana with her prodigious powers of breath.
0: I love it. all right, well, here we go to to another 500. <laughs> <laughs> A quiet place takes place in the near future when an alien species having landed on Earth has all but wiped us out. The key is how... These half-primate, half-arachnid creatures have acute powers of hearing, but uh, as I pick up from the movie, almost no eyesight or apparently sense of smell. Anyway, they have hearing. Everything else is quite limited. If you are very quiet, they can't find you. If you make even a little noise, they appear out of nowhere, and boom, you're snack food. The movie centers on a homesteading family trying to survive. It stars John Krasinski, who also directed the film, his real-life wife, Emily Blunt. Their oldest daughter, I should say, is played by Millicent Simmons, who is deaf in real life. She plays a deaf character, in the film and the family is signing with one another, presumably one of the reasons they've been able to survive as long as they have. Anyway, let's listen to a clip.
2: All right. Well, because this movie is, is almost completely dialogue-free, or the dialogue is whispered and almost inaudible, we don't have any clips with with language, but we have a clip that gives you a sense of the sound textures a bit. And all you need to know about this scene is that it involves a little boy playing with a toy that's making an electronic sound, and that sound awakens the monster.
0: Dana, let me turn to you first. Uh, We've done a bunch of movies that uh, this one reminded me of over the course of the show. It follows. It comes at night. Don't breathe. And, you know, to a degree, Get Out maybe is in this um, genre. What'd you uh, you make of this one?
2: Uh, I'm sorry to say, I mean, I'm all very happy about the emerging or actually quite established now genre of the low to mid budget indie horror flick that this falls into. But I was really disappointed in this movie. I don't know about you guys. I was not scared at all. Not scared for oh, a Oh, that's why I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised we even got Julia to see it because I know she dreads horror. But I, don't, I mean, I can get into many, many reasons why. But the, the premise is flat. You never learn anything more about the monsters than you know in scene one. I don't know. I mean, Millicent Simmons, the actress, the deaf actress who plays the daughter is great, but I just saw her in a much better movie, Todd Haynes, Wonderstruck last year. That was a richer part for her. I feel like the people are just bait and the monsters are trying to get the bait and the quiet premise is all we've got. And, uh, well, we can, and, and then I think there's also a big why did they do that problem, right? I mean, the worst kind of horror mm-hmm. movie suspense right. detractor is the one where you sit there saying,
1: why didn't they just dot, dot, dot. I, I can't think of an obvious why didn't they just. Um, and thus, I'm curious. I completely disagreed. I liked this movie so much. I Everybody's mean,
2: loving it. I mean, it's getting these incredible rave reviews. I just, I found it boring and unscary.
1: <laughs> well, it was definitely not scary. That's why I found it tolerable to sit through <laughs> um, mm-hmm. in, those, in that list of recent horror movies that we've discussed on this show, like, let's put an asterisk on that we, because I somehow always manage to be absent the week that you guys discuss horror movies, because I really don't like seeing them. Getting scared is not what I want from my on-screen experiences, but uh, this one looked in- too intriguing to skip. So, in the spirit of committing to our next 500 episodes, I went and I saw it, and I feel like this movie is not um profound or saying anything new about any particular theme that hasn't been said before. But if one of the ways in which you judge a horror movie is what kinds of thematic material it gets to explore, this is a movie about the terror of parenting. It's like the terror of uh, bringing creatures into the world and trying to protect them and um, the way in which the mechanism of the film which is that they have to make everyone be quiet is so at odds with what children are and do um and the question of like what it would mean to live in a world where you couldn't talk or laugh or sing or frolic or thoughtlessly you know make any sound i that was like evocative enough to hold the whole thing together for me i don't know that seemed like enough thematic material to to hold my interest through uh Taught interesting world that was
0: kind of a marvel to spend time in.
2: But you didn't want to be scared, and you were not scared. I was definitely
1: scared. I, not I scared. mean,
0: yeah, I have to say, I, I I have to ask, what's wrong with you two freaks? I watched this from underneath my seat in the movie theater with a Mets cap pulled halfway down over my eyes for the whole thing. I was scared shitless from beginning to <laughs> end of the movie. Um, and secondly, like, Julia, I think you really nailed it. Like, there's something about the movie brings together the gimmick of the creature, which is that they're acoustically sensitive, but otherwise sensorily blind, right, with this fact of parenting, which is that you're always struggling to turn your mewling, screaming, loud children from fingernails across the blackboard into thoughtful mostly silent, <laughs> um, reflective creatures. And it's this is a, that's a life or death struggle in the course of the whole movie. It gives the movie textural originality. It's mostly takes place in silence. Um, you're always waiting for someone to knock over a coffee pot or giggle uh, unexpectedly. You see the hyper-vigilant discipline with which this family has to live. I found that Wonderful, right? The game of Monopoly always...
1: becomes interesting. Even the game of Monopoly yeah. is interesting because they have to play was, like so what if pieces. what if they bonk on Park Place too hard? Like that's the that's textual originality is such a great phrase for this movie because everything that should go one way goes a different way because of the new rules and that makes it fascinating
2: but there's no build i mean didn't you guys find it's the same premise oh, from the beginning well. there's no build in, in in either suspense in degree of knowledge about the horror
0: i mean there's th- yeah so so i i came up with a screenwriting maxim because of my deep experience as a script writer i know everyone's on the edge of their seat to hear it but
1: what, what's your maxim
0: tight scripts spring leaks more easily so i thought that the the movie that this was most comparable to other than the toast scene in phantom thread was it comes (laughs) at night which is also about a post-apocalyptic in that case a disease has wiped out most of humanity uh you know homesteading family and what the internal dynamics of the family mean vis-a-vis their ability to survive and that movie was built around you know built around ambiguity you it really was never really defined it may be their own sort of horrible unconscious fears and you know mistrusts or whatever this film is totally unambiguous there a, a meteor has implanted this hideous hairy giant arachnid primate creature on the planet with with acoustical superpowers you make a noise it comes and kills you it's this is not an ambiguously constructed film it's tight it's tight in the sense that when you actually look at all of the plot points and all of the turning points it's it's totally you know beautifully three-act constructed brings you to the specific like you know i mean i don't want to give it away but there's a thing that happens and you're waiting for it to happen and it does happen and it's you know milked for maximal suspense. At that point, you you start to notice where the script is leaking. So Dana, that leads up to... I want to hear yours and see whether they overlap with mine.
2: This is not really a spoiler because you see it in the trailer and it's a huge part of the movie, but Emily Blunt's character gets pregnant in this world. Like by the time... We get a counting of days, right? When we start, I think it's day 89 since the the meteorological invasion of acoustic monsters. And uh, and then we skip way ahead to day 400 and something. So and that means that she and John Krasinski's character chose to have another baby in the scenario that they're in where any sound will get their entire family killed, which to me undercuts the entire premise that they're these incredibly devoted parents that would do anything for their children. It's just, it was a dumb idea. Of course mm-hmm. the monster is going to come get them. And so the whole part where you're supposed to be so nervous for the baby, and will it be all right? And what's going to happen when she gives birth? I'm just thinking, like, you could have avoided this, guys.
1: Well, Mm -hmm. who knows what their access to contraception is in this world? I
2: mean... I felt. Well, they, then they should talk about it. Then there should be a scene where they say, "Why are we bringing a baby into this world?" And they fight about it. Oh, because life is important, and we must bring it into the world. But they do world. have it's that scene. You do
1: come on, Danny. You don't actually want that scene where one of them says, "Because life is important, <laughs> and we bring it into the world." A and B. They basically have the more subtle and and evocative version of that scene where they wrestle with some traumatic incidents that happened to them early in the film, and they think about. What does it mean to be alive in this straightened way? I mean, that's what, the the textural originality. It's such a good phrase for for this film, Steve. Because one of the things I liked about it was not just that Monopoly becomes suspenseful because it might make a sound, or the fact that the rules of the monster, which agreed, are slightly weird because the monster is incredibly acoustically acute, like down to eight decibels or whatever the decibel is of speaking out loud, but you can apparently like breathe and shuffle near it and it won't hear that. Like it's very sensitive to a certain cutoff point and then can't hear below that. Like it's acoustical sensitivity. That's one of my, what if like, why is that that way? It's very convenient for the storytelling, but like you get these things where the, the evasive maneuver in the movie is to like run helter skelter quietly, but with your arms flailing and a flashlight waving like things that would not connote stealth in any other movie, are stealthy in this movie because you are silent and you are padding in bare feet on a sandy trail that's been put down, so you can't even crunch a leaf of grass. All of that stuff is surprising. The other thing that's surprising about it is there is no banding together and coming up with a plan and you know trying to prevail because any kind of banding together would make noise. And so there's this daily moment where John Krasinski's character goes up onto the top of a grain silo and, like, lets up a flare and sees the flares of other people's farms on neighboring hilltops and knows that other families are essentially sheltering in place out there, but they cannot, like, there's no point. The danger of trying to mount a rebellion is impossible. And so that sense that it's not the scrappy team and, like, the boy Mm -hmm. soldier and the girl scientist and they've got to figure out like (laughs) what's in the DNA and what's the... Like, it's just like what would it be like to be a bystander and not the hero, Mm -hmm. you know? And then, of course, the movie takes its arc and eventually you learn some things and it seems like maybe this family will end up accidentally being the heroes in the end, but... Like what would it really like to live through be, live through an alien invasion? Like you wouldn't be on the team with Morgan Freeman like you you wouldn't be you wouldn't be in the spaceship. Like it's what if you're not the hero of the alien invasion and you're just trying to survive? What does survival look like? And one of the questions is, so does it end with you? Like, or are you actually trying to make a life in this new world where you can't make noise? And this mm. family has chosen to 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 persist. and that's super interesting and raises all these interesting questions. There was yeah. so much to I- think about. I, 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 I,
2: I thought it was just them being dumbasses and they were just bait over and over again. <laughs> scene after scene. Oh, we're bait. Oops, we got eaten. We didn't get eaten. I mean, I, I, it was not suspenseful. In,
1: I come away from this. I haven't seen John Krasinski's other films and frankly have been somewhat uh, disinclined to check them out. It's like, oh, I see. Jim from The Office wants to adapt David Foster Wallace's like least successful book. Great. That sounds great. Like, I'm sure I'm interested in your art guy. Like, it makes him seem like one of those guys. (laughs) Totally unfair, but that's definitely how I classified him. It's like, oh, nice. John Krasinski wants to make art great. Um, Freaking John Krasinski. I'm so interested in what he directs going forward. I thought this was Mm -hmm. really well made. There's just a couple great set pieces in here that are so clever. One involving the old urban myth about the grain silo. I won't go further than that, but it's like something that might have lodged in your head and gets turned into a totally fascinating and suspenseful scene that I haven't seen the likes of. The basic observation that the sound of a squealing hearing aid is like one of the most irritating and horrifying sounds in the world and like should be weaponizable. Like those are, it's just, it's like an incredibly elegant, taut little concatenation of interesting insights about the world. Love this movie. Horror movies forever, not scary ones.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I have to say, I love the genre. I love that the genre is a money maker. The ROI, the return on investment here, really is is kind of massive. I mean, this thing's over 150 million global box office right now. On, I have to guess, an initial you know cost of under 30, certainly probably 20. All right, a quiet place. It's at a theater near you. Check it out and let us know what you thought of it. All right. Before we go any further, let's uh, let's talk business, Julia. What do you what do you have?
1: Yeah. First, I want to recommend a particularly excellent segment from a recent Slate podcast. In a recent episode of Hang Up and Listen, our sports show, not this week but the week before, uh, Josh Levine and Stefan Fatsis interviewed two gentlemen who'd played on two Topeka high school basketball teams during segregation. Uh, I think the peg for the conversation was the death of Linda Brown from the Brown v. Board of Education case. but essentially, there had been a high school in Topeka where all of the white students played on one basketball team and all of the black students played on a different basketball team. And they just played against totally different in different circuits. And it was just a given of high school at that moment. Uh, and the interview with these two players about what they felt about it at the time, what they've come to feel about it since was incredibly illuminating fascinating and worth listening to. So check that out. It's the Goalie is an Accountant edition of Hang Up and Listen from last week. Uh, I also wanted to talk a little bit about our Slate Plus segment today. Perhaps you've been wondering when we will weigh in on Brad Pitt's new girlfriend, MIT professor and weird chair designer and Glamazon uh, kind of... She actually looks like she could be in Howard End. She has Howard Endian hair. She's sort of Edwardian hair. Neri Oxman... We will be discussing the amour of Brad and Neri in our Plus segment. And if you would like to hear what we think of Brad, Neri, and her weird chair, or as Ruth Graham put it memorably in the pages of Slate, two attractive designers of unattractive chairs, you should join Slate Plus. To hear segments like this one and to get ad-free podcasts, join Slate Plus, our membership program, which is a great way to support us in the work that we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of our shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, Steve, what's next?
0: Howard's End is the masterpiece by E.M. Forster. It tells the story of three families that become entwined in pre-World War I England with the world on the cusp of not only war but modernity. The Schlegels uh, and their two brilliant perceptive culturally and morally alive sisters. The Wilcoxes, a family headed by a traditional patriarch capitalist. And the Basts, a lower middle class family whose narrow hopes of rising are balanced against an absolute abject terror of falling into... Oblivion, what role does money play in this universe relative to fineness of feelings? These are the great themes of E.M. Forster. This is possibly one of my three or four favorite, most admired English novels of all time. It was already a 1992 Merchant and Ivory adaptation, so what has BBC brought to the mix? Let's listen to a clip.
2: But what sort of people are these Wilcoxes, Margaret? I don't understand. I don't know any more than you do. We met them in Germany. Mm. Oh, you girls have always been so independent. Isn't that generally reckoned to be a good thing, Aunt Julie? Well, oh, I'm sure I don't know. But I have always thought that the care of your sister and brother too great a burden to place upon a young woman of
1: your tender years. Your youth has practically been thrown away on your precious independence. Practically? Yes, Margaret, it has. Who is to say what the result might have
2: proved by now, had your father left you in my care, which I know your dear mother would oh, have dear wished. Angela, as I was, let's and not go over that again. Poor mother left it up to Papa to decide. Papa left it up to me, and I don't think I've done so badly after all. And I've always valued your advice. Yes, but you never take it. Oh, I'm not saying you've done badly by Helen and Tibby, dear. Just for yourself. Aunt
0: Julie! Excuse me, miss, but Master Tibby's asking for you again. Thank you, Nancy. And I should say that's Haley Atwell as Margaret Schlegel. And that's Tracy Ullman playing her aunt. Uh, Julia, I, I'm curious not only what you make of this, but ha- had you seen the 1992 adaptation? Have you read the novel? What's What's your history with Howard's End?
1: Howard's End is a novel so beloved by my mother that I read it as soon as I was able to read novels in fifth grade. And I haven't read it since in any context, academic or otherwise, and I never saw the movie. So I really know basically nothing about the book except that it was good, deemed good by people I respect and has the phrase only connect in it and came to this completely cold and am so charmed by this adaptation that I need to rocket all other versions of the story to the top of my various lists.
2: And Steve, if you want to hear my mini history with this intellectual property, I did read the novel not as long ago as Julia, but long enough ago that I should really reread it. It is a fantastic novel. And I loved the 1992 adaptation so much that I was sort of dreading this, thinking, oh, well, of course, this is going to ruin it. It can't be as good as The Merchant Ivory. And, uh, and I was wrong. This is a great adaptation. It's more faithful to the book. I'm about halfway through it and I can't wait to finish it. I feel like it because it, it's more ample, it's a TV show, it has time to explore some of the themes of, you know, the fine class distinctions of, of pre-war England in a way that the Merchant Ivory movie didn't. I also have one small correction to, to something I said last week because we talked about this show with Willa briefly, right, Julia? I think she endorsed yeah, Howard's
1: it. Yeah, Howard this adaptation was Willa's endorsement on last week's right. show. Never mind, Steve. There was no show. Never mind.
2: <laughs> and, and I incorrectly said at that time, well, I correctly said that one of the best Merchant Ivory movies, I think, is this adaptation, is their 1992 adaptation of Howard's End. But I incorrectly said that Daniel Day-Lewis is in that movie, which he isn't. I was thinking of Room with a View in which he has this wonderful character as a, as a fop who's, uh, who's in love with Helena Bonham Carter, but he's not in the, uh, in the Howard's End at
1: all. But Steve, this seems like this must be a Metcalfean property. So if this is ranking up at number four or above on your list and fundamentally engages questions of class things that I imagine you to be interested in. Steve, please elaborate.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, my history with the IP is that, you know, as I said, the novel (laughs) along with Middlemarch is probably my favorite English novel of all time. Um, I love the 92 adaptation, but honestly, these novels, especially this one and certainly Middlemarch, just can't be squeezed into a two-hour format properly. They need to be cut down and made cinematic in in ways that uh, kill their novelistic strengths you know um i also think that merchant ivory while i i love them um i do think that they bathe you know 19th or early 20th century like edwardian british culture in twilight you know a beautiful you know twilight dappled nostalgia that i I mean this really is about um the world on the verge of being completely destroyed by mechanistic and global war and and totally remaking exactly these class relationships. And the Schlegels and the Wilcoxes are both utterly magnetic households. And I think Lonergan in his adaptation has gotten at that beautifully. I mean, my memory of the ninety-two movie is that the patriarch in that film is played wonderfully by um, Anthony Hopkins, but he's played as a, as I recall, a stiff, uh, remote, sort of pious, capitalistic, you know, father figure, whereas in this one, he's full of juice and life. And and, and he's Bonhomme. played by the
2: hottie, Matthew, Matthew McFadden, who, if you watched MI5, the British spy series from 10 years ago or so.
0: This performance speaks to something I think really important about this adaptation, which is that you know, as filtered through masterpiece theater and a little bit through Merchant Ivory, we have this idea of the of the you know of the pre-war past in England as sort of corseted bosomy and very formal, right? Like everyone has perfect posture, and the cleavage is plunging, and you know the dialogue is witty, and and on and on and on. And it, 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 Lonergan has brought these people down to earth. They feel very human. They don't they they feel very remote in one sense they're preoccupied by things that we might not be or in ways that we wouldn't be but um but they're utterly they're utterly human they're, they're they're they they in their own homes they relax with one another and communicate with one another as human beings they're also highly self-conscious of who they are and what their life choices mean and they're befuddled by that and trying especially the Schlegel sisters they're trying to think their way through to understanding why they've ended up privileged or uh, or or uh, on the one hand privileged on the other hand uh, economically irrelevant relative to the Wilcoxes like all of these things are part of their uh, mental furniture in a way that I find completely believable I'd be remiss if I didn't say this also features Alex Lothar of End of the Fucking World as their younger brother Tibby Schlegel he's Almost scene stealing. Everyone else is so good the scenes can't be stolen that easily. But the character that always has fascinated me from Howard's End, from the novel, from the adaptation, and now, especially from this one, is Leonard Bast. Because Bast, in a weird way, is at the heart of the story. Bast is a new, uh, you sense that Forster perceived Leonard Bast as a new kind of creature, which was a member of the white-collar poor, and this would have been new at the end of the 19th century, vast armies of people leading middle class or lower middle class or pseudo middle class lives at the very end of the non-labor workforce. And the sense of their struggle and their anonymity, in some sense, to the quote-unquote higher orders was always at the center of the moral questions that Forster is trying to work through. And the way in which the Schlegels take him up is both earnest and totally insensitive to the point almost of feline sadism. I mean, there's an element that they aren't aren't taking sadistic pleasure at all. They want to help and understand who he is, but they're so encased in their own... Uh, class-bound, upper-class-bound worldview. What they're really doing is cat and mousing him, and some combination of Hetty McDonald, the d- director who's done fantastic work in Lonergan, who of course is very alive to all of these uh, fine distinctions, have really gotten at the heart of his, uh, you know, really kind of tragic position. Uh, so I'm, I'm captivated. I'm like Dana, I'm halfway through. I'm going to lap it up eagerly, and um, I love it.
1: If you are young, bookish. Person, girl, cherry picking the greats of British and American literature, you find a lot of plucky girls who contain more than their society wants them to allow. Like the distinctive, surprisingness of the Schlegel sisters, and them being sort of bohemian and intellectual. And I didn't know to be struck by them when I first encountered the story. I didn't really quite get how unusual well, you those were. 10, were.
2: So. <laughs> I'm amazed that you could follow the story. I mean, it really is all about real estate and kind of appreciation of properties.
1: <laughs> like I said, I didn't. But I think so. part, part of it might have been that I was dead. <laughs> but part of it. But part of it is like you know you like the you know there's there's Joe and there's Elizabeth Bennett. like you never meet you rarely as the protagonist the female protagonist of your novel just like a girl who wants to get married and thinks society is just fine and lets her do whatever she wants like they they always are boundary breakers that's what makes them novelistically interesting but um, the figure of the capitalist and and recognizing that that person is is kind of compelling and disturbing at the same time. Like, obviously, plucky girls and rich men have, are, are parts of the plots of a whole suite of British novels, but this notion that it's not a, a member of the landed gentry, but someone who's kind of engaging with business and matters of the world, and that that's befuddling and beguiling both to the Schlegel sisters, like that part of it feels distinctive as well, and, and, and apropos.
2: And fascinatingly, Only Connect, I think this is true in the novel as well, Steve, it must be Only Connect, this much quoted Ian e. Forster kind of, you know, feel good quote that's ended up on a million Hallmark calendars is said about by one of the Schlegel sisters about Matthew McFadden's character, the, the capitalist, right? I mean, the mm-hmm. connection that she wants to try to do is across the bridge of the sort of bohemian privileged class to the more rapaciously capitalist Privilege class, and uh, and that was something that really struck me. I mean, you would think that that might come up in the Leonard Bass story when they're trying to make a connection, you know, across classes, sort of moving downward.
0: Right, and 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 the, what's so heartbreaking about the Leonard Bass story is that he's a cultural uh, aspirant, right? He has all these aspirational associations. He meets them because he's going to see Beethoven's Fifth in some fancy concert hall and he reads the right books and he wants to talk about the right books with them, but he's got this sort of sweaty earnestness that uh, puts them off that kind of a discussion. They keep asking him about what, just what it's like to be Leonard Bast, like he's this fucking specimen behind the glass. Um, and the second, I think kind of really hard, tragic irony about the Leonard Bast figure is he is exactly who is going to fight and die in World War 1 in 4 years if we know our history he's going to get chummed at those front lines he and all of his mates essentially uh and and the further twist there is it's 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 World War and the total mobilization of the pr- British populace and essentially, the young populace of the West that begins to affect the changes by which someone like Leonard Bast no longer is fated to a more or less anonymous and economically threadbare existence. I mean, those who survive come back for, from the war. World War One, it, it started. World War Two, it gained enormous amounts of steam. And they say, no, we're no longer like we we saved humanity's bacon essentially. And the idea that we're going to go back to dead end or meaningless lives is just off the table. And you get something like a a, a modern and efficient meritocracy. And if you're smart, and if you're aspirational, someone like Leonard Bast in the United States goes on the GI Bill uh, and maybe becomes an English professor, really did become an English professor. That is historically actually what happened to the American versions of Leonard Bast. And what's so poignant about this is that You know, Forster has chosen to write about that moment before that opportunity presents itself, and with a high probability that he'll die in the war and won't see what benefits it, you know, it wrought.
2: Yeah, Steve, that was so well observed that I hesitate to add anything, but I would just say that Lonergan complicates things, I think, in one way that Merchant Ivory didn't, and I don't think even even Ian Forster did, which is that he introduces, very subtly, but he introduces race into this equation too, right? Because there's a black maid who works for the Schlegel family, and, uh, and some question of her, some sort of hints that she is sort of on the outs with the rest of the white household staff. And also Leonard Bass's wife seems to be biracial, although that hasn't been mm-hmm. sort of established what her, her ethnic background is. But that those seem like unusual elements in your average kind of costume drama adaptation of a British novel. And to me, those are also Lonergan's gestures toward imagining what a world might look like after this world that we're watching mm-hmm. has fallen into dissolution.
0: I think that's exactly right. And I, and also we should add, he's made it very funny. I mean, I can't remember how funny the novel was, but I there are touches that seem to me Lonergan's and uh, I could hang out in the uh, Schlegel sisters drawing room until the cows came home uh, and listen to them jabber and Tibby you know, uh, faint on the sofa in the corner.
1: I mean, yeah, there's also a way in which the just costume drama wish fulfillment is different in 2018 than it was in 1992, like all the poofs and puffs and crinolines of Merchant Ivory, even if I haven't seen that particular one, or maybe more what glamour was then and glamour now is, is like you could just freaking paint your... Wall with the exact same mural they have in their Wickham Place living room and feel extremely <laughs>
0: ochreant.
2: Oh, yeah, that double breasted coat Haley Atwell oh, wears. Yeah, y- Buttons all the way
0: <laughs> down. You guys are my Schlegel sisters. <laughs> and I'm Tibby. Why, why didn't we notice it? And I'm Tibby.
2: <laughs> you are so Tibby. <laughs> Just lying foppishly right. on the couch, smoking and complaining. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: And a hay fever seizure. You know, I havel. also I was like,
2: it. is hay fever what hay fever was? Like, <laughs> Haley Atwell can't travel? I simply can't
1: leave. Tibby's got hay fever.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's like the inciting incident of the whole novel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's true. Uh, all right. Listen, we thought it was fantastic. Uh, it means we'd like you to watch it and report back. So that means going to facebook.com slash culture fest. All right. Moving on. Most of my educated middle-class friends had begun to double down on their health-related efforts at the onset of middle age. If not earlier, so writes Barbara Ehrenreich in her provocative essay, Preventative Care. She goes on to write, I had a different reaction to aging. I gradually came to realize that I was old enough to die, and once I realized that, I decided I was also old enough not to incur any more suffering, annoyance, or boredom in the pursuit of a longer life. I eat well, meaning I choose foods that taste good and that will stave off hunger for as long as possible. I will seek help for an urgent problem, but I am no longer interested in looking for problems that remain undetectable to me." Ideally, the determination of when one is old enough to die should be a personal decision based on a judgment of the likely benefits, if any, of medical care and, just as important at a certain age, how we choose to spend the time that remains to us. Dana, let me start with you. I thought this essay was was captivating. I'm a huge fan of Aaron Reichs, and I think she's sort of hit it out of the park on this one. She's getting at an issue that has been on my mind a lot recently, which is we have a medical-industrial complex that draws no line between disease and what are normal features of aging. Um, it profits off of conducting tests, prescribing medications. There's an enormous incentive to play off of what really are, are the health neuroses of aging baby boomers. I thought this essay was quite persuasive for as maybe counterintuitive as it was. What do you think?
2: I mean, I admire Barbara Ehrenreich tremendously. And she writes beautifully about, about something that, yeah, I think everybody as they get older has to, whether about themselves or their parents, has to start asking these questions. What kind of interventions are worth it? And how many tests do you want to have for things that you may or may not be suffering from? I don't think I come down on the same side as her. If I were Barbara Ehrenreich's daughter or grandchild, I think I would be annoyed that someone I loved was so um, so fiercely devoted to not taking care of themselves. Um, but it sounds like she's made the right choice for her, and that this should be a legitimate topic of conversation. That you know, people as they age decide for themselves the same way you decide if you're going to have a DNR if you go into the hospital and and not be Mm. resuscitated from a coma or something. Um, At times, Ehrenreich's desire to sort of slash and burn her way through the medical industrial complex or what she sees as this sort of American philosophy of happiness and health that's that's oppressive, right? She has a whole other book that she wrote that was just essentially about self-help that had a smiley face on the cover that was just all, you know, trashing the idea of mindfulness or sort of... um, uh, positive thinking, right? Um, I'm not sure that I can completely get behind that because there's also a big question of quality of life, right? It's not just how many years you live, but what happens in those years and how you feel in them. And so, for example, to hear her as she did in a recent interview about this, this book with Isaac Chotner on his great uh, I Have to Ask podcast, She was sort of dissing all of her friends who were into mindfulness and yoga, and I was thinking about my own parents, who my father just turned 80, my mom is in her late 70s, and I feel like they're much happier, healthier, nicer people to be around because they take good care of themselves and, you know, do things like go to yoga class or whatever, so... So I don't know. That's a bunch of answers at once. I think everybody should read this and should think about the ideas in it. I don't know that I regard it as a prescriptive piece of writing that I would mm-hmm. want myself or certainly my
1: older relatives to go around believing in. Well, I think the multifarious nature of your answer is solicited by the piece which nests a lot of things within it. I mean, one of the things that it does is talk about deciding that you're old enough to to cast a skeptical eyebrow at the idea of preventative care. But then the actual persuasive medical conclusions are really more about screenings than the broader practice of preventative care. I mean, preventative care is like getting screened to see whether you have problems that there's really nothing to do about. She talks about getting a bone density screening, which not surprisingly reveals that as an aging woman, she has pre-osteoporosis, which probably most women of her age do, And the types of treatment for that are nothing, you know, calcium and exercise, but it's basically too late to make a difference or a pretty invasive drug that has pretty um, serious reported potential side effects that she then she opts not to get the screen because she knows she would opt not to take the hypothetical drug that might be, you know, prescribed as a result of it. That sort of like get an expensive medical test to figure out whether you might have incipient something or other is one set of things to reject. The broader idea of like, should I try to preserve my flexibility? Should I try to add a daily yoga practice? Should I try to eat healthfully and like not die of salt and fat consumption? I mean, these are intensely personal decisions, but the set of questions she poses at the kind of financial imperatives of our healthcare system and what types of things they suggest that your GP propose to you on an annual basis when you're in your seventies and and being skeptical of and aware of the reporting around those versus like, what's your personal approach to fiber stretching and yoga? <laughs> like those seem mm-hmm. like two very different sets of questions and approaches to your impending mortality that I think mm-hmm. it might be useful to separate out a bit.
0: Right. I mean, it, it, does she get a certain bang for her rhetorical Buck by blending them together, though. I mean, the the there's there's a somewhat narrower critique against a you know, what she calls medical industrial complex whose profit motive says medicalize uh, everything, uh, test everything, um, and uh, prolong life uh, for you know uh, extend longevity as far as possible. Then there's another consideration which is beyond a certain point in one's own life there's a cost benefit analysis that the medical profession does not encourage you to make which is you know as she says I refuse to accept a medicalized life so for her you know she's willing she's willing to take the risk that she will die sooner than she might have otherwise in order to live a certain way um, and what I like about that is there's a sort of existential strength to it uh, or courage to it which says you know more years more time is intrinsically is not itself intrinsically inarguably the goal that that life has a delicious deliciousness to it that uh medical invasiveness uh destroys Therefore, having twenty years of that is is relative to five years of that deliciousness. Not worth it. Um, and then finally, I think that there's a deeper argument, which is you know, Ehrenreich Reich is a, a proud woman of the left, and um, I there, there is a way in which critique of you know of late capitalism or neoliberalism or whatever term of art you want to throw at it. Um, it maximizes a kind of happiness in an oppressive way or manipulative way. And I thought that that was definitely in the background of all of this. So that brings in the idea of like kind of maximizing yourself through yoga practices and, and, you know, uh, you know, hyper neurotic nutrition. And they did get bound up in one another, but I thought that they were part of this polemical self-assertion in favor of um, a different way of looking at life altogether, which would include rejecting both yoga and uh, mammograms. To me, to me, that so just makes I,
2: no sense. Like, it, I, yeah. I guess, it's, I mean, it just seems intuitively true that having some sort of regular exercise practice, whether it's yoga or something that Barbara Ehrenreich deems uh, in, inappropriately spiritual, or just jogging around the block is something that turns you outward, not inward. That just mm. doesn't seem like... Right. And, and, and mammograms are just... You only have to have them once a year. It doesn't seem like that huge a, a sacrifice. It's true that there are a lot of false positives, and I've had some worrisome mammograms that turned out to be nothing in the past, and I guess you could look at that as wasted time, but I would still want to know. I guess I'm I'm not old enough to be ready to die or something, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I still, can, I still sort of feel like I'm the daughter of a doctor, I'm the sister of a doctor... I'm not mm. that down with trashing the medical industrial complex when right. I know so many people whose lives have been saved by screenings and interventions.
1: Yeah. And to me, the the, the medicalized life, like the, the conversation around the choices you make at or close to death where interventions are invasive and quality of life is quite poor, like the cancer patient who decides to forego further treatment or et Etc. Cetera, et cetera, et oh, that's et cetera. a whole different topic. Like I mean, that set of medicalized life—that's that—is a absolutely. Um, that seems like a very urgent conversation where where the incentives of the medical profession and the healthcare industry really do lead to a bunch of subpar outcomes because we assume that duration of lived days is the goal that everybody has agreed on. Um, But at this earlier phase of like she kept talking about the medicalized life and I had the same response like, I don't know, it's not that hard to go to a doctor, like get a checkup or a test. And one question I had is so the I read this with a skeptical eye, but then I thought about some of the moves I've made in my own life, which is to not get tested for the breast cancer genes, despite having had two grandmothers who collectively had one breast by the time they died. But I haven't gotten tested for that gene. Because I'm sort of like, what am I going to do with that? I don't want to know about that. I'm going to continue to get my regular exams. And when I get to the age where they start recommending mammograms, I'll start doing mammograms. And like, what good would, like, that's a level of preventative awareness that it's just like, I don't really You're not going to go
2: full Jolie on that one?
1: No. I, whatever. That's not the choice I've made yet. So I've sort of made an, anti, an anti-screening decision there that may or may not be Mm -hmm. rational. That's sort of in keeping with the argument here.
0: I do wonder if we're looking at this from the point of view of relatively still young people, as opposed to a septuagenarian or an an octogenarian whose life becomes massively medicalized and kind of wall-to-wall medicalized. I mean, I scarcely know anyone over the age of 70 who um, doesn't have a, 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 a much more kind of continuous relationship to the medical establishment um, via medicine and screening and testing. Uh, And so from our point of view, yeah, I guess the the cost-benefit analysis relative to an annual mammogram or or prostate exam or whatever, um, you know, given how nipping something in the bud May give you an abundance of more years in life. That one's pretty easy. I I, I think it does get harder as you get older. And I want to frame this. I have a 93 year old father who's in knock on wood relatively good health. I have a 91 year old neighbor who's a miracle of good health, in part because of a yoga practice, and um uh and and, and you know just general self care and engagement with life. I mean, I I do think longevity can be a, a, one of the most intrinsically like non. You know, unquestionably beautiful things about life is staying vital and connected to life for as long as possible. Um, there's no element of ageism, I think, to Barbara Ehrenreich's argument, or I hope you know my um, appreciation of it. Um, I just think that there is a a t- a general tide of American life towards self-help, self-actualization. In in its own perverse way, is just a little bit life-denying. It, it it denies what's intrinsically wonderful about life in favor of just more life. And I thought someone taking the polemical extreme against that was valuable.
2: Yeah, I agree. It's, it's a great piece of piece of polemics, and uh, you can you can pick and choose what parts of it to agree with or, or shake your fist at. But it's it's completely worth reading. I mean, her, her basic point about life being for the living was something that came up for me in a different context this week where there was all this research that you guys see. In, on one day last week, two different big studies came out showing that even moderate alcohol use, drinking, is, is horrible for you, basically. One of them was specifically linked to breast cancer and just had these Yeah, that wasn't giant a study. That,
1: that was a, a Mother Jones piece noting that actually the research has been done for decades and has been suppressed.
2: And, and that nobody talks about it, right? Yeah, but the,
1: the drinking is linked to breast cancer. Incidents in a way that's not out of totally out of line with the ways in which smoking is drink is linked to lung cancer. But we don't talk about drinking and breast cancer that way at all.
2: Right. That was one. And then there was another study that I'm not even going to try to cite where it came from. But I mean, it wasn't on, you know, it wasn't on yourhealth.com. It was this. it was a somewhat legit study that had nothing to do with any specific disease, but was essentially just saying there is no healthy amount you can drink, that it should be, you know, basically zero or some very minimal number of of units per week, and that we've all been overestimating it all these years. And I thought about that because, Steve, as we've talked about before, I think for you and I both in our lives, like, wine is just a grocery item. (laughs) It's just a thing you get with your food and basically, like, drink with dinner almost every night. And I was thinking, do I want to cut that out of my life in order to, you know, adhere to this study or this new uncovering of old evidence. And my response to it on Twitter was Trump is still president. So I'm having some wine. (laughs) I mean, life is hard. I don't drink too much. It's a part of my life that I enjoy. And ultimately, I think I'm kind of doing a Barbara Ehrenreich deal there where I'm saying like, go ahead and shave off five years later on. But this tastes really good with my steak right now.
0: Right. All right. Well the essay uh, is by Barbara Aaron Reich. It appears on Lithub April ninth, two thousand eighteen. It's titled Preventative Care, Why I'm Giving Up. Uh, you should definitely check it out and come to Facebook dot com slash culturefest and tell us uh what you think of the argument. All right, moving on. All right, well, Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have?
2: Stephen, I have an endorsement this week that I'm so excited about. I was so thrilled when I watched this last night, and I immediately thought, I can't wait to endorse it. So it's been a while since I've had an endorsement that I send people as enthusiastically to as this short film made in New York City in 1911. This was posted this week to Twitter by Kurt Anderson, the wonderful host of Studio 360, which is now in part a Slate show. Correct, Julia? Yep. We've got him on our, our podcast roster. And uh, and he's a great tweeter, if you don't follow him. He always finds interesting things and sort of, it's almost like in the Kotki mode. He just finds neat stuff. And uh, and this particular thing is some, some footage shot on the streets of New York City in 1911 that has been, in some way, I don't quite understand it, has been digitally smoothed or upgraded so that the movement looks like like it was filmed by a modern camera. And you'll see what I mean when you watch it, that when you see an old film, that old of a film, there's usually a slight herky-jerkiness to the movement, and I'm sure it has to do with the amount of, of frames that they filled in or something. But they updated the footage so it looks very smooth. It's about 10 minutes long, going around various spots in New York, many of which look surprisingly the same. The Flatiron Building is visited, and some parts of the waterfront are visited that look very similar. And there's this sound put in. Of course, it was originally a silent film, But the sound that was put in is so subtle and beautifully done. It's not sort of hokey like ragtime music to feel all old timey. It's just sort of the realistic sound that you might have heard at that moment. So if it's by the water, you hear maybe some, you know, horses clopping by and some some water lapping and you might hear some mumbled conversations and a couple of Model T's going by and for someone like me who's been submerged in reading about this era a hundred years ago and just constantly having this question like, but what was it like? What was it like? This piece of, of film of New York for some reason just gives you the feeling that you're there and you feel like you're walking down the streets that you know in 1911 and it's it's a it's a very strange effect. Um, a lot of people on, on Twitter were commenting on that, that the technological upgrading and the sound mix just does a beautiful job of of actually sending you back in time. So... So we'll put a link to it on the show page. But again, yes, it's a clip of New York City streets in 1911. I've seen that link going around and have not yet watched it. And now I will do so post-haste. It's hard to explain why it feels different than most footage you see from that time. But it's quite remarkable.
0: Essentially the same year as Howard's End. I love it. That's right. Uh, uh, Julia, what do you have?
1: Uh, I've got a recipe this week. I will start with a macro endorsement. That won't be news to anybody who regularly cooks and reads the internet. But Smitten Kitchen, man. What a great food site. Like, Deb Perlman, her recipes just work. I like her taste in recipes. Like, the combination of basic skills and interesting flavors is, like, at my exact preferred level cooking-wise. Like... There's not a lot of deep frying individual bay leaves to place atop a specific <laughs> thing. But there's also just a pursuit of interesting types of flavors. And also, she's a great baker. And I, at the present moment in my life, when I don't have a ton of time to cook, and so my kitchen time is more hobbyistic, I'm probably more inclined to like bake with my kids on a Saturday afternoon than be cooking for sustenance. The particular recipe that I want to recommend this week is her recipe for even more perfect blueberry muffins. Um, She has long been a person who has chosen an adapted Cook's Illustrated blueberry muffin recipe as her favorite. And as I think our listeners will know, my previous favorite blueberry muffin recipe was a Cook's Illustrated recipe. So already she's operating from a base I can respect. Um, But the innovations in this new recipe are lemon zest in the batter. Game changer. And the practice of putting a bunch of turbinado sugar on top before you bake, which I generally try to avoid over sugaring muffins, but there's a little bit less in the batter and more lemon zest in the batter so that the batter itself and the kind of muffin cakiness is pretty like tart and tangy. And then the sugar is on top in a in a delicious crumbly crust and the juxtaposition between the tart tangy batter and the sugary top as opposed to just like a dense sweet nubbin of muffin is truly game-changing. So that recipe is even more perfect blueberry muffins featuring lemon zest from the great Deb Pearlman of Smitten Kitchen. Nice.
0: I have a little backstory to my um, endorsement which is that I was listening to a um Phoebe Bridgers record, which I had endorsed previously uh and which I love and uh on it she sings a song called "You missed My Heart," which I just hadn't really tuned into before, and it's just this riveting, astonishing ballad and I looked it up and it turns out it's by um it's a cover it was originally by Mark Kozlek, who once fronted a band called Red House Painters now is uh, in a band called Sun Kill Moon. And I, I don't know if you guys know, Mark looks a fucking genius. The guy is an unbelievable songwriter. And I knew about Red House Painters, listened to, I mean, they had a really cool album called Ocean Beach. I like their music. But Mark like went through this transformation. He's now in his early 50s, but about five, 10 years ago, he started playing a nylon string classical acoustic guitar and writing these very... Somewhat stream of consciousness, very narrative and very emotionally naked songs, some of which are fucking incredible. It's amazing how good this music is. And, um, uh, you missed my heart. It's just, it, it, to my mind, is one of the greatest songs ever written. But he has oh. another one called Gustavo, which, uh, he also does, um, both ways he does it with the band but he also does it solo acoustic on some of his live records the the the, the solo acoustic performances are riveting but you just he just is doing incredible incredible songwriting work I mean anyway so I, if you haven't checked it out Mark looks solo live records um are unbelievable he sometimes records under Sun Kill Moon uh that's Uh, sun as in the sun in the sky, kill as in K-I-L, one L and moon. But uh, some of this music is just, it's just astonishing how good it is. Hardest possible pounding of the table on this one, but if nothing else, listen to Gustavo and uh, You Missed My Heart. All right. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. As always, you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. And we have a Twitter feed. It's at slatecultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Daniel Schrader. Executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Liktai. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Uh, we'll see you soon. A broken tour
1: saw her sitting there,
2: drinking Coke and whiskey in her bra and underwear. I saw him in the kitchen, hanging up the phone. I asked him nicely once to
0: pack his
1: things and go. He gave her a reassuring
2: look and said he